Well, good morning, friends. It's a tremendous joy, as always, to be with you today, and always a privilege to open the Word of God together. It's been lovely to share in fellowship already this morning, and all that's been part of the early uh, stages of our meeting. Thank you to everyone who has participated and who's led us uh, so well. Well, as uh, Jonathan alluded to, you've been busy since last I was here to preach on a Sunday. I was just, I was given the, the end of chapter one, and here we are. I think I'd covered maybe the tail end of the last 50 or 51 verses, and here you are now going into chapter 15. So you've been busy, I've just journeyed through this magnificent gospel of John, and we have a stunning passage before us this morning. It has freshly thrilled and amazed me this week. And I'm just going to pray again in a moment, but before we do that, I want us to have our sights set on the overall aim of the Lord Jesus as we go into chapter 15. They've now risen and left at the end of chapter 14, the upper room, but he's continuing to teach them. And did you notice the last verse this morning? The last verse is verse 11. I've now switched on the microphone. That was, your, that was your subtle hint. Thank you very much for that. We're now on Kylie. Excellent. It's working well. Uh, notice verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, said the Lord Jesus, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So everything we're looking at this morning comes under that ultimate aim of the Savior. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Maybe you arrived this morning already full of that kind of joy in the Lord, very conscious of the fact that you're part of the vine. Maybe you are here this morning in great need of a fresh experience of that joy. Well, as we take the Lord Jesus at his word, isn't it thrilling to know that if we, if we understand this text today, if we get it clear, if we take it to heart, if we take it to life, it will be to us the key to the greatest joy imaginable. Let's ask the Lord that that would be our portion. We bow before you, gracious God. We thank you for all that has gone before in our meeting this morning, for the praise of your name, for the encouragements of hearing what you're doing here in Hamilton for the reminder of how you use the most unpromising, uh, like Moses. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the truth of your word that has been read, for the way we've been led in prayer, for all these blessings. We've heard your word read, and now we come to sit under it together, and we humbly ask for preacher and hearer alike, this miracle, Lord, that you would help us to know your joy, and as a result, that our joy would be full. Please awaken us, open our blinded eyes to see truth of your Son, to hear, as it were, his very voice speak into the depths of our being, individually and corporately. We ask it for the glory of his name. Amen. Well, the events of chapter 15 bring us to less than 48 hours before the Lord Jesus laid down his life for us upon the cross, bearing immeasurable fruit for eternity. That's what he was doing when he went to 
the cross. You've already read in chapter 12, verse 24, how he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he is a fruit-bearing Savior by his life, by his death, by his resurrection this morning, by his kingly reign. But that's what was ahead of him as we turn now to chapter 15. The time was short, and so the Lord Jesus turns again to instruct his followers about the nature of their ongoing relationship with him, even though the day will come very rapidly now where he will be physically absent from them. And you can see that this section is all about what it means and why it matters to abide, to remain permanently in vital living fellowship with the Lord Jesus. There are mainly two things I want us to look at this morning. The picture of our relationship with him, and then in a few moments, the proof of our relationship with him. So let's go to the first of these just now. I don't know if I'm advancing. There we go. Let's go to the first one, um, the picture of our relationship with Jesus. I don't know why that says two and it's one. My fault. This happened late last night. But don't be confused. This is point one, the picture of our relationship with him. So this is the last of the I am statements. If you've been collecting them as you've gone through John's gospel, your collection is now complete. And for this last of these I am statements, Jesus selects the picture of the vine, which was very well known in the Old Testament and was originally applied to Israel, who were God's vine. And you can see when you look at verse 1 that immediately the Lord Jesus is setting up a contrast. He doesn't just say, I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine. You see the contrast that he's setting up. He's unlike the original vine, God's people, Israel. Let me read to you from Isaiah 5. You don't need to turn to it, but this will give you a, a flavor of what I'm talking about. Isaiah 5 verse 1, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why, says the Lord, did it yield wild grapes? Israel, God's covenant people of the Old Testament, were the failed vine. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They were very religious and very godless at the same time. But Jesus wasn't like that. Chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. And then he broadens the picture, and my father is the vine dresser. So the picture is of Jesus, the true vine, succeeding where Israel failed, bearing immeasurable fruit, bearing eternal fruit. And his father, the vine dresser, who we immediately know is utterly committed to the fruitfulness of his son. That's the role that God the Father has in this picture that we see before us. But then we see ourselves in the picture. It's funny, isn't it? When we look at a picture and we know we're in it, it's always our faces we look for first. Well, you can see yourself here. Drop down to verse 5. We'll come back and fill the rest in a moment. But verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. And we find here, don't we, that there are initially 
two types of branch in the vine that the vine dresser works with. There are the fruitless branches and there are the fruitful branches. So back to verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, that is God the Father, the vine dresser, he takes away. Now, this might seem contradictory or even deeply unsettling regarding our eternal security as believers. And if you're engaging with this text this morning, you might look at verse 2 and say, well, how could someone be in the vine and yet find themselves removed from the vine? What, what can happen? But I want to remind you that actually we have seen this very situation already in John's gospel. Do you remember in chapter 8? You could flick back to this because it's an easy find. Chapter 8, verse 30 as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. So that was a great start. Chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So this was a moment of clarification. This was a moment of potential certainty for them. They had begun to believe in Jesus. It looked as though they were part of the vine. The question is, will, you, will my word abide in you? Will you show yourself thereby to be my disciples? And it seemed to have started very well that day. They believed in Jesus. Yet the reality is, from chapter 8, they, they, his word didn't abide in them. They actually lost the rag with Jesus. When he said that he had the power to set them free, they began to argue, we've We've never been slaves to anyone. Insanity from their own history. Just not true. But it was a sign of their total rejection of the Lord. And down in verse 37 of that chapter, Jesus says these stunning words, I know that you're offspring of Abraham, so you are the original vine, yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word finds no place in you. That's a spiritually fatal condition. When the word of the Lord finds no place in us, as we'll see. So though they appeared for a while to be branches in the vine, the word of the Lord did not abide in these offspring of Abraham. They showed themselves not to be his true disciples and they were removed, chapter 8. Same is true in chapter 6 with Judas. He was one of the Apostles physically as close to Jesus as anyone throughout his ministry. And yet in chapter 6, verse 70, you may recall Jesus answered them, did I, not, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And by this point, where we are this morning in chapter 15, by this point, Judas had already gone out into the darkness, as John tells it so evocatively. Chapter 13, verse 30. The vine dresser had done his work. Like the dead branch he was, Judas was removed. Chapter 6 happened. Uh, sorry, verse 6 of our passage happened. Look at it. 15, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. This is solemn stuff. Early on, in the passage this morning, isn't it? It's solemn. 
Yet it's, it's not unusual to find this in the Bible. This is not strange teaching. This is absolutely consistent, for example, with Mark 4, the parable of the soils, where we see some people seem to be like soil that has accepted the, soil, the, the seed in which it has germinated and they seem to be bearing fruit. Then years, even decades later, verse 19, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. That's the same reality as the reality we're looking at in verse 2 of John 15. People eventually become unfruitful. And it's a desperate sign because there are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. And that's why Jesus continues to tell us about the work of his Father. It's not all negative work. Look at the second part of verse 2. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So he clears away the fruitless dead branches, and he cleans up the fruitful, abiding, living in the vine branches. He goes to work, as you may have to do in a few weeks' time, with the secateurs and the loppers. Maybe a few weeks is optimistic. But at some point in the spring or early summer, ridding the plants, the trees in your garden of the life-consuming junk so that real fruit can be born. Now, having work done by secateurs and loppers sounds painful. And it is. And that's exactly what the writer in Hebrews 12 speaks about, doesn't he? When he says in verse 7, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse 11 of Hebrews 12 For the moment, all discipline seems painful. That pruning work in a believer's life seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, says the writer, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So here's the picture that the Lord Jesus word paints for us here in our relationship with him. And it's a picture that is consistent with the whole of the New Testament. He is the true vine. His father is the vine dresser. His, his uh, true followers are the branches in which and through which his life pulsates. Now, you might be asking yourself a fundamental question this morning. You, you might be saying, well, I get that. I see this image, but how did I get into the vine to begin with? How did I become a branch in the vine? And there are two answers, two verses that give us a great answer to that in this section. One is actually not in my section. One is beyond my section. But I've been given a special dispensation. I'm not going to steal Nigel's thunder for next Sunday. But I've been given special dispensation to draw your attention to verse 16. This is what's coming next week. Where Jesus says the most astounding thing. He says to his his branches. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear and bear fruit. So as we look around this hall today, what are we looking at? Well, we're not looking at a group of people out there or up here. We're not looking at a group of people who were naturally predisposed to loving and serving and belonging to Jesus. That would be very important to know if you are watching online 
not part of the church family, or if you're here this morning and you're trying to work out what on earth is going on with these people, none of us is naturally predisposed to loving and serving and knowing and treasuring the Lord Jesus. We may sing occasionally the old chorus, I have decided to follow Jesus, and that is true. We do come to that personal decision, but our relationship with him was not initiated by us. That's the point. How did you come to be in this vine? None of us is in the vine because we chose him. None of us attached ourselves to him. Anyone who's in the branch, who's, who's a branch in the vine this morning, it is because of his amazing saving intervention in our lives. That's amazing. That's thrilling. There is no inherited gene that puts the life of Christ in us. Gene as in G-E-N-E. I don't mean if your name's Gene, you're in trouble. Um, All we inherit naturally towards the Lord is the instinct to run from Him and to rebel against Him. So the fact that any of us is in the vine is incredible. And if you're not today, this is great news for you because the initiative in saving does not lie with you. Even if you find the Lord Jesus disinteresting, boring, dull, Oh, even now, he might awaken your heart. He might do something, even from this passage this morning. So we're branches of the vine because he chose us, verse 16, and because he cleansed us, verse 3. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. All that the disciples had heard from Jesus, as he spoke formally and informally, as they walked along the road and as they were in the synagogue or as they were in someone's home, as he answered questions, as he had to rebuke them at times, as he encouraged them, as he broke up the fights with them. All of these things that they heard from him had a cleansing or a pruning effect. I'm no expert in the Greek language, but I understand that the, the, the word to, to clean and to prune, it, it can have the same meaning. It can have an agricultural root to it. And again, it wasn't just that Jesus spoke his word to them they responded. They came, alive to, they came alive to that. Judas was with them, but he didn't come alive to it. He heard everything that everyone else had had to say. And as the word of Christ cleansed and had an impact on the other 11, it had zero impact on Judas. He just loved the money back and the perks of the job as he saw them. That's why back in chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus said, to his disciples, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Because his word had not gone to work in Judas's life. It had not found an abiding place in him. But even then, having heard the word from Jesus so that they were clean, Jesus goes on to say there in verse 4, have a look at with me, abide in me and I in you. So he's just said to them, you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you, but that's not the end of the matter. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, abide is a very old-fashioned word, isn't it? We, can't, we don't really use it very often nowadays apart from 
at the FA Cup final. It's been sung at the FA Cup final in England since 1927 when it replaced Alexander's Ragtime Band. We sing Abide With Me. And I guess the phrase, we might say we have an abiding memory. That's the other way we tend to use that word today. But I hope you don't mind me using it. I'm, I'm okay with it because ESV uses it. And it, it relates to the word abode. Meaning a dwelling place where, where you live. Some of you are like me, old enough to remember Ricky Fulton when he did his impersonation of the uh, police uh, motorcyclist and on one occasion stopped who turned out to be a former girlfriend of his and she'd done very well and she was driving an immaculate sports car and he's trying to impress her and she's trying to impress him and she's been caught speeding and he gets her name and he writes it in his book and then he says, address. And she says, oh, address don't know how to answer you, whether it would be the the townhouse in the West End or the estate in Monte or uh, our little home in Argyleshire. So he says, I'll just write, no fixed abode. (laughs) It's a great moment. No fixed abode. Well, true believers have a fixed abode. Our abode is the Lord Jesus. And Jesus' point is plain, just as grapes only grow on the branch that is constantly well supplied by the life of the vine, so followers of the Lord Jesus will show themselves to be his, to be in the vine, to be connected to him as we live fruitful lives. And his life is in us and working through us. Again, do you remember in chapter 14, as you saw it, verse 23, he answered them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him or her. His people will be his abode where he abides. And he will be his people's abode where we abide. So the word who became flesh and dwelled among us in chapter 1 verse 14 now dwells within us. And the Lord Jesus wanted his disciples to be aware of the fact that though there was going to come a day when he would no longer physically be with him, they would relate to him nonetheless as we do this morning, friends. We're in that position that they were coming into. We don't have the physical presence of the Lord Jesus. But he wanted us to know that we relate to him in as real and as vital a way as the fruit-bearing branches related to the vines that grew in the vineyards all around them that day in Israel. So the relationship with the Lord Jesus is pictured here, our relationship with him. Even a little fruit is a sign of life, but no fruit is a sign of death. So doesn't it make us want to be sure that we are abiding branches? I mean, who wants to risk being thrown away to wither their way through life fruitlessly? then to be gathered and burned in the end. This picture of our relationship with Jesus shows us why it matters that we abide as branches in Jesus the vine. And now we move to the second half of the section and we get to see what it means that we should abide in Christ. And so we move to the proof of our relationship with him. I take that word proof from verse 8. 
By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So we bear fruit by abiding in Christ because apart from him we can do nothing, verse 5. And the fruit that results from that that we bear is proof positive that his life is in us and that we are his. And by this, verse 8 says, God the Father is glorified. So the key question as we begin to come in for a landing now and, and, and finish up this morning in a few moments' time, the key question for us is, we've seen this picture of, of, of abiding in Christ. Now, what does that look like in practical life? How do we do that? How do we abide in him? We can sing about it, we can think about it, we can understand the concept, but what does it look like actually to abide in him? Well, I think three things that we can see from this. Number one, we abide by our obedience to his word, our obedience to his word. So have a look with me at verse seven. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, now we're going to come to the second half in a moment, but let's break it off there. An abiding branch is a person indwelled by the word of Christ, says Jesus. Obviously, this means more than having a Bible. It actually means more even than reading the Bible and hearing it taught, utterly essential though these things are. But it's easy, isn't it, to read your Bible as a kind of tick box, ex tick box exercise. But his word abiding in us means more than that. It means the living word of God, not just being like an icon on the computer desktop of my life, reminding me of a program that I can occasionally open and close as of when I feel the need for it, but rather the word of God is the operating system. It's the OS of our lives. His word abides in us as we carefully read it and hear it and process it and submit to it and apply it and obey it. Now, the problem is, this may sound very cold. And Jesus goes on to talk about, as we'll see in a moment, our obedience to him. But actually, it's the root to not only, only knowing the will of God for our lives, but the love of God in our lives. Have a look at verse 9 again. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So that's amazing, isn't it? Jesus knew and felt that boundless love of the Father to him that week as he prepared to suffer and die. The Father's love wasn't growing cold towards him. So this morning, if you've ever wondered how loved you are in this universe, if you've ever been disappointed by love that you would have felt entitled to but let you down badly, and you scratch your head and say, am I loved at all? Well, think of how the Father loves the Son, how God our Father loves Jesus, and you will have your answer as to how you are loved. That amazing verse 19, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Do you know Stuart Townend's salvation song? 
Let me just quote the first verse. Let it quietly blow your mind as you think of how loved you are. Loved before the world began. Chosen by my maker. Hidden in my savior. I am his and he is mine. Cherished for eternity. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Stay in the radiant warmth. Stay in the light. Stay in the comfort. Stay in the protection of my love. And how do we do that? We do it by obedience to his word. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. He didn't say if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my good books. He didn't say if you keep my commandments, I'll love you. He was talking to his people for whom he would shed his blood and it had already happened in the mind and purposes of God before the world was formed. And he's saying, I already love you. I already am pouring out the love on you that my Father has for me. I'm the conduit by which you know his love and my love. And the way that you abide in my love is to obey my word. And then he gives us a testimony in the second part of verse 10 about how that worked for him. Just as I kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Do you remember that amazing expression of his father's love for the son in chapter 8, verse 29? He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You see how Jesus is so consciously abiding in his father's love, so conscious of his father's love for him. He hasn't left me. He's remained with me. And what was the sphere in which he knew that it was always doing what pleased him? That's the key. As we do what pleases the Lord, as we find that in his word, the result is a thrilling sense of his love for us. So verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my father's commandments and keep his love. So let me ask you this morning, as you read your Bible from day to day, as you, as you seek to abide in Christ and his word abide in you, how is that going? You're now into chapter 15 as a church family of John's gospel. How much of this has made a lasting impact upon you? Are there bits that you can remember that you almost will, could say, I'll never forget that Sunday morning? When I heard that, when I saw Jesus freshly in chapter 3 or 7 or 9 or, or whatever it was. Have you had that kind of word abiding in you experience? Or from your own Bible study, from your own reading of his word at home, are there, do, do you find that he faces up to you and says, listen, Craig, this is what's wrong in your thinking. Here's what you should do. Now, who wins that debate? If I ignore it, then his word is not abiding in me. Can I recall anything from God's word that I've read this week? Can you recall anything from your own Bible reading that you've read this week? You see, if we can't, how can it be abiding in us? The first way to be sure that we're abiding in Jesus is for his word to be abiding in us. Secondly, and much more briefly, we abide in him, we stay in, the, stay in the vine by our obedience to his word. Secondly, by our dependence on his help. So let's do the whole of verse seven now. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask 
whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. You'll not be surprised to know that there are false preachers all over the world who use a verse like that to teach that they can name and claim anything they want, and God is duty-bound like a genie from a lantern to do exactly what they ask for. But that does terrible violence to the text because the context makes it unmistakably clear that the person asking there in verse 7 is a person who's in ever-deepening, ever-developing fellowship with the Lord Jesus as their ultimate treasure. And what they're asking the Father for is what will enable them to bear more fruit. And how is the Father portrayed in this chapter? He's portrayed as the vine dresser. And Jesus hasn't forgotten that when he says, ask my Father for anything you need. But in this context, it is with the desire of bearing more fruit, and it is with the possibility that he will give us what we need using the secateurs and the loppers. He will work with us. He will work on us tirelessly to enable us to produce this fruit. If you abide in me, says Jesus, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. By this, verse 8, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So God the Father, if you trace the flow here, is glorified by us bearing fruit and we bear fruit not on our own, but by complete dependence upon him and upon his son. I wonder has this dawned on you as yet this morning? This is not a passage in which Jesus trains his disciples on how they can stand in their own feet and produce fruit by themselves to pay him back. We're not meant to go away from here this morning saying, oh Lord, I should be making more fruit for you. I should be producing more fruit for you. That would be to misunderstand it completely. It's impossible for us to generate spiritual life. It's impossible for us to generate spiritual fruit. All the life is in the vine. All the wisdom is in the vine dresser. And we're being trained by the Lord Jesus here to remain and to depend on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for everything. That's why he gets the glory. That's why it is to his glory that this would happen in verse 8. But what a privilege is ours to come before our Heavenly Father and say, Father, your Son, the Lord Jesus, said I should come and tell you about my needs. I want to glorify you, Father. I don't feel I'm bearing much fruit. I want to bear more fruit in 2023. I want to bear fruit that will last. And Lord, I can't do it without you. And Jesus is the name that always prevails with the Father. And he says, the Father will do for you whatever you need in that context. It's a picture of complete dependence. When last did you feel utterly dependent on the Lord? It's possible, isn't it, just to kind of bump along with life, a life so mundane that it requires nothing more than the strength that we by ourselves can muster. But actually, we're meant to be living lives where we realize we are totally out of our depths. As Paul reminded us this morning, as Moses was, looking for a strength that is not our own. 
It's uncomfortable, isn't it? But actually, it's great for us individually and it's great for us as a church family when we know that we're stretched beyond our abilities and beyond our resources, when we know we have got nothing to bring to the party. It's great for us because we learn to depend. We abide by our obedience to His Word, by our dependence on His help. And then lastly, and this is where we finish, where we began by our experience of his joy. This is probably the point we need to be convinced of most of all because there is a little voice probably throughout this this morning telling us that abiding in Jesus the vine is the route to misery. And, you know, it's for these serious Christians. And it's not a happy life and it's a hard life and the the work of the pruner the work of the secateur and the lopper oh, doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me. I'd rather not be that kind of Christian. I'll just be a kind of borderline. In the vine enough to be saved. Don't want to go to hell. But not in the vine so much that I take all that pruning stuff seriously. See, hear Jesus, verse 11. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We sometimes sing solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. But solid joys and lasting treasures are the constant surprise discovery of those who abide in Christ. Solid joys, indestructible joys, and lasting treasure are the constant, amazing, thrilling discovery of those who abide in Christ. The proof of our relationship with the Lord Jesus is the fruit that He produces in us. The fruit is His life in us. Now, here's a little diagram that I hope will help us to wrap this up as we finish. So far, it's only a number of arrows, but let's, let's take it like this. What does this all mean? Number one, abiding in Christ leads to what? Secondly, it leads to increasing fruitfulness. What does increasing fruitfulness lead to? God being glorified increasingly, verse 8. What does that lead to? Increasing proof of discipleship. The, the reassurance, I'm really His. He's really chosen me. He's really cleansed me. I'm really in the vine. I know that because this is happening in my life. There's fruit being born, and it's not my idea, and it's not my generation. He's generating this. Abiding in Christ, increasing fruitfulness, increasing glory to God, increasing joyful proof of discipleship, which leads to increasing joy in our lives. The verse 11, joy, the wonder of being in the vine and having His power, His grace, His life at work in us. And when we have that joy because of all that Jesus is doing, what does it make us do? It makes us say, I'm sticking with Him, which leads to more abiding in the vine more increasing fruitfulness, more glory to the Father, more proof of discipleship, more joy in our lives, and so on and on and on it goes. The only thing that matters today is that you and I are branches connected to Jesus, the vine, and know His life in us. If you have any fruit in your life, fruit in terms of maybe your witness to others, fruit maybe in terms of 
your character being changed, your tongue being changed, your thought life being changed. That's fruit. That's the word abiding. If there's any fruit at all like that, it's because you're in Him. If there is no fruit, it's because you're not in Him. You're apart from Him. You're doing nothing. But Jesus spoke these words in the last full night of his life before he was arrested and tried and executed. Surely he was reaching out to his beloved disciples then. Surely he's reaching out to us with this text this morning. Time without number, I have felt myself to be as spiritually dry as a dead old branch in the heat of summer, even a west of Scotland summer. Time without number. I have felt myself to be like that. And I tell you that this morning, just in case you're exactly like that, having looked at John 15. And I'm always amazed at how quickly the Lord Jesus brings life back to the dead. I'm always amazed by how Gracious he is to feed me from his word, to remind me of his love, to fill me with his joy, and for me to begin to feel the life of the vine in this dead branch beginning to be regenerated again. So if you're joyful this morning, if you came joyful, I hope you're more joyful now as you leave. But if you're alarmed at your fruitlessness, Verse 7 is for you. Ask the Father. Get real with God today. Ask Him. Confess your need. Trust the Son. Know His love. Feel His joy. These things I've spoken to you. That my joy may be in you, said Jesus. And that your joy may be full pause to pray together and then we're going to be led by the band as we sing Father you know what surgery you've been doing on the branches of the vine here in this building this morning you know where each of us stands before you so personally we come to you now and we ask on the strength of the words of your lovely Son. We ask that we would ask aright. We long to wish for the joy of being in the vine and the fruitfulness of a life pulsating with the reality of the risen Christ. So in the quietness of our hearts now, Lord, will you do that work, whatever it may be, In mercy, will you draw some to yourself and graft them into the vine as they humbly turn to Christ for the first time? Others of us who've professed faith in you for years but struggle this morning to see the fruit, oh Lord, encourage us to be before your throne of grace and to know that joy again. Thank you that you don't keep us waiting long for that. And for some who are rejoicing already, keep us abiding in you. 
that we may know your joy to the full. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.